Welcome to Spin It, where the worst of times can become the best of times. I'm your host, Stephanie Malik, an award-winning crisis management expert and business consulting strategist. Along with my team of experts at S. Malik Enterprises, I have worked with thousands of high-wealth individuals and businesses over the last 25 years to create customized approaches for crisis management and business consulting to ensure they take their careers, relationships, and companies to the next level. On Spin It, we pursue purpose and passion, aspiring to uncover the true story behind every guest's successes and failures, removing the mystique behind what it takes to be truly successful from those that have actually done it. I'm chatting with executives and entrepreneurs all over the globe to understand how they turned obstacles into opportunities to grow not only themselves, but their businesses. I want to impact and inspire you and as many people as possible, not by blurting out the same old motivational phrases, but with the truth and authenticity behind real success, along with the roadmaps and methodologies it takes to get there. Whether it was a scandal, a broken business model, or simply navigating the noise, we want you to learn from our mistakes. It's all in how you spin it. Today, I speak with the founder and host of Entrepreneurs on Fire and best-selling author, John Lee Dumas, for a quick conversation meant to motivate and inspire you. So in looking through all the research, um, I saw that you were in the Army for about eight years and that you were deployed. (laughs) You're deployed for 13 months, and you've been really open and very honest about PTSD and the effect that it had on you when you were coming back and kind of reintegrating into, you know, just being back and starting to go through the motions and just really honestly, John, the things that used to light you up or that you were passionate about before really just didn't kind of have any interest like the Patriots. So can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe some of the things that people may be going through right now and some lessons that you learned in going through that. So I spent 13 months in Iraq as a tank platoon leader when I was 23 into my 24th year. And it was a pretty intense experience. You know, of the 16 men I deployed with, um, four of them gave the ultimate sacrifice. So we definitely saw, you know, a lot of sadness, a lot of hardship. And it was, you know, really traumatizing in a lot of ways. But when I got back, I really felt like I reintegrated well. You know, I was back, I was still in the army. So I was still like going to the military base every single day, hanging out with the military. I felt like I was reintegrating well back into society, which is why it kind of surprised me like a a couple of years later when, as you kind of mentioned, I started finding myself being apathetic about things I had never been apathetic about. I grew up a Patriots fan. I love the Patriots. And I just always took for granted that I would live and die every Sunday with the Pats. Like that was my team. Like, you know, touchdowns, I'm going crazy. The other team scores, I'm down in the dumps. And then I just found myself watching the game one day and I was like, I could care less about this sport. In fact, what is this sport? This is a really weird thing that's going on right now on my television. And I'm like, how is that even possible? I'm thinking that way. And it was kind of a shock to the system that like I was kind of experiencing a delayed onset version of PTSD which was making me just very apathetic about most things in life and especially things in life that I used to be very excitable about. And, you know, that's definitely led me to seek therapy and speaking to people and, you know, getting out and being even part of some groups of other individuals that were dealing with this form of PTSD as well. And it wasn't immediate or overnight, but over time, I was kind of able to overcome my apathy that I was having 
and kind of get back into what I kind of consider more of like the, you know, the passionate, enthusiastic JLD that I was for most of my life leading up to that. So it was, you know, a, definitely a tough time in my life. It was definitely a shock to the system and something that I think is important for people to realize that PTSD after a traumatizing event is fairly normal, but it's also important to realize that it could come a year, two, three, five years in the future and really kind of be a shocker that could come out of nowhere. And if you don't trace it back to the roots, you could really kind of be left scratching your head as to why are you feeling this way. That's really interesting. And and the obstacle, obviously, like you said, is it didn't just happen right when you got back. It actually happened quite a bit of time later. Talk to me a little bit about, you said therapy. Was it regular therapy? Was it was there any other modalities? I know a lot with PTSD, people are using like EMDR and other types of CBT and DBT. Was it straight therapy or was there any other modalities that were used that were helpful? It was just straight therapy and then going to some group sessions as well. And um, I, I did, you know, strongly consider going down the route of um, doing different pharmaceutical medicines that were available at the time. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I, I just decided personally that I wanted to go about it in a kind of more conversational way instead of right. uh, a pill form. That was just my decision at the time. I don't think it was necessarily the right or wrong decision. It was just my decision. And so it was mostly just the, the talking group therapy. That's great, John. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. So whenever you got back, you jumped into law school and that didn't work out. You didn't really find passion in that. You tried corporate. You didn't find passion in that. Some other jobs as well. Tell me how you actually found this niche, this purpose, and this passion to actually inspire and impact so many other entrepreneurs. And, and I want to share with you briefly um, I'm not a podcasting person. I'm not one of those avid podcasters, those rah-rah people. Your podcast was the very first podcast I ever heard. Love that story. And, you know, for me to answer that question is just, I finally looked in the mirror and said, what am I doing with this life? You know, am I going to just kind of continue to make decisions of what I think are going to bring me like financial success, whatever that means, or respect, right. whatever that means? Or am I going to start making decisions that I think might make me happy, might actually bring joy to my life and fulfillment? And that's going to flip the script for me. And in fact, it was a Albert Einstein quote that I still love to this day, which is try not to be a person of success, but rather a person of value. And like when I understood finally what that meant, I realized I wasn't being a person of value. I wasn't adding value to people's lives. And that led me on a journey, it wasn't immediate, but a journey to identify what I could actually get excited about, passionate about, how I could add value to this world, which happened to be a daily podcast interviewing the world's most successful entrepreneurs and sharing their stories, their failures, their dark moments, as well as their successes and overall winnings that they were having over and over again at life, whether it be winning at health, winning at relationships, winning at business and talking about those winning moments. And, you know, to me, that was what I wanted to bring to the world. I could get excited about it. And that's why I love hearing stories like from yourself who came across Entrepreneurs on Fire through, you know, any number of ways and, you know, was inspired to say, wow, this person's sharing a platform that's allowing other people to give their voice, their message, their mission to the world. You know, maybe I can do something similar or maybe I can have the courage to come out and, and share something because, you know, that's what it really comes down to for a lot of people is who am I 
to start this podcast, to start this product, this service, this business, this solution to a problem? Who am I to do that? And, you know, if my show can help people get to that action button, then I've done my job. And, and I think, I think John, so I think that that was the thing for me. And I think that was the most compelling thing for me. And that's quite honestly, that's why I was really a little bit sad that I didn't get more time with you because I really wanted to share with you how compelling it was for me because to your point, to your exact point, and we don't know each other. So this is really important for me. There's so much noise. There's so much regurgitated content. There's so many people that because they pay for ads or they believe that their message is the lightest and the brightest. For me, it was different. I had run a company. I had, you know, been a vice president. I had grown up in Silicon Valley professionally. I had been on several deal teams. I didn't want to contribute to the noise. I'm like, why me? Who cares? There's so many other people that have a stronger voice, have a stronger network. And after listening to you, and you know, granted, it's been years. I mean, it's been over five years. It didn't, I didn't just, you know, roll out of bed and decide I was going to do this. But my reach now with clients is so intense that I don't get that breath, if you will, to actually go out and share, you can have a different journey. You can do it a different way. As long as the way inspires you and you show up and you add value, because it's not about success. It's about how many people find you useful and how many people you actually inspire to make a change or to live their authentic life, if you will. Mm, you have been listening. I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So let's get to it. So you're known for the first daily interview, which blows me away again, because knowing how much research and how much information goes into every one of these things, it's interesting. Cause when I first did this, John, I was like, how did, he's so good. Why does he only do one a day? And now I actually know why you only do one a day. <laughs> so in looking at it, you, this is what set you apart. This was your key differentiator, a daily interview. What advice would you give to entrepreneurs that are really trying to have key differentiators or trying to make a difference and be a standout, not just people that are in mainstream. What would you talk to them about? You need to understand the simple fact that people will beat a path to the doorstep of the best solution to their specific problem. And they will ignore the second best solution through infinity. I mean, listen, Silicon Valley's littered with the second best solutions to what Amazon created, to what Netflix created, to what X, Y, you know, these people have created the best solution and they're winning disproportionately as a result. And so what you need to be doing as you're going forward here is saying, okay, I do have this big idea that I'm passionate about that I can add value to in this world, but I'm also gonna be able to, dis to discover the niche within that big idea that's undiscovered, this underserved part of the market, this void that is not being filled. That's yeah. where the gold lies. That's where you can get your initial momentum, your initial traction that can then blow you up to the world. And I mean, to kind of even use Netflix as an example, you know, in another way, shape and form is, you know, back when they started, and I remember this because I'm old enough, is they would just send you three DVDs at a time. You would have to get those DVDs, mm -hmm. put them in your player. And, and then when you put it back in the mail, then they would send you the next one. And like you asked my 10 year old niece right now, what a DVD player is. She's clueless. Like she doesn't even know what a DVD player is, but what did they do? They found a niche that existed at the time that people wanted the DVDs to come to them and they got momentum and traction. And they were able to use that initial success to shift, pivot, and adjust as the market 
shifted, pivoted, and adjusted over time. And so don't think that like when you go into this little micro niche that so many people are like, but I'm so scared, John, because it's such a micro niche. Like you're not writing your gravestone with this. You are getting your initial momentum, traction, proof of concept that you can then trump and double down on as you go forward into that next thing that you're, you're able to do because you've built something that's meaningful at the beginning going forward. That's incredible. Niche down. So I've been known, I've been called and been known as the dream killer because I basically say you're addressing this gigantic, massive gap. Let's address this gap. What you should be called is everyone. the lifesaver because you're saving people from wasting their lives. And, and their money and their resources and their relationships and all of the people that they're so excited to talk about this. It's too big. If you're serving everyone, you're serving no one. You're serving no one. The and competition's already there. It's entrenched. It's going to squash you like the little bug that you are when you start because we're all little bugs when we start. You need yep. to find a niche that has a barrier that's so high that your competition is low to non-existent. That so you can build a moat around your business. Like you mentioned, the daily podcast the barrier was too high for anybody to even try to copy me. Because once I started making a couple hundred thousand dollars a month, of course, everybody wanted to try to copy me, but they couldn't easily, it wasn't easily replicated because there was so much work, energy, and effort behind that. My barrier was so high, my competition remains low. That gave me the the success. Because if I had done something that had achieved as much success but had a low barrier to entry that was easily to be replicated, everybody would have flooded in the market and everybody, including myself, would have lost. So that needs to be a huge part of your thinking process. And I love that you brought that out because again, like I said, because you've been so successful at this and you really understand what it looks like, it makes me excited that you're actually saying, hey, you know what, niche down, um, don't be part of the mess. You know, obviously, you know very, very well, first to market obtains most of the market if you're good, bad, or indifferent. And you just really need, you need to be a standout. Like you need to actually really niche down and be a standout. So thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, I would sum it up like with this. You need to be the best solution to a real problem. If you can't honestly look in the mirror and say that you are, it's time to find another solution you become the best at or another way to niche down even further. Right. But again, John, we could go on and on about this all day long because here's my thing. How many people think that their problem is an actual real problem? And then we go down that rabbit hole of this is not, I mean, this is, it's just not. And they're very passionate about it, but passion doesn't sell a lot of the times if it doesn't really truly address the need. And to that point, it's like, people will vote with their wallet. If it's really a significant problem, people will vote with their wallet. They'll actually part with hard-earned cash. Until then, it's not a real problem. It's just an idea. And you know, like I I say this before, I say this all the time. I'm like, not every single idea requires an action. People have ideas all day long, but to monetize something and make it real and show value and actually create an asset, it's not Mm. a lot of the ideas that a lot of Silicon Valley people have. (laughs) So let's talk about scaling. Here's another little dynamic word about scaling. In your book, you reveal that you made over $27,000 the first year podcasting. Scaling means so many different things to so many different people. But I will tell you, what I have learned is research, promotion, productions, and outreach can get completely, totally overwhelming. So what made you decide, what was that pivotal moment where you're like, okay, I can do this, add value, and make money? What did that look like for you? And then what are the systems that you use to scale? 
It's a big question that unfortunately we're not going to be able to address today, but it sounds like you're going to have to book me for another time on your show, which will be fun. But, you know, the reality is this, is that I had the right mentor and the right mastermind in place that allowed me to see the future because they were living in the future. My mentor was a year ahead of me. My mastermind had people in it that were years ahead of me and they could show me the kind of business I had to build to be able to scale. And I just followed their lead. Like history it's there. It repeats itself. And so when you hire the right mentor, like I'm sure people have done with you, Stephanie, like that is the best way to achieve success is to find somebody who is currently where you want to be in life. They will be able to show you the path. I love that, John. Thank you so much for taking the time. And I would absolutely love to have you back to address my next 5,600 questions. It's the plan. It's a plan. <laughs> Bye, Stephanie. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit the subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my website at stephaniemalik.com.